Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? His com- he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Welcome. If you're visiting with us, we are moving through uh, the Gospel of Mark, still in chapter 1. And as we return to this, the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, um, he, Mark, begins to unfold for us the events of Jesus' ministry that began in the Galilean city of Capernaum. Uh, Back in verses 14 and 15, we saw the essence of Jesus' message. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In verses 16 to 20, uh, we witnessed the power of Jesus' call upon his core group of disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, saying, follow me. Part of salvation, right? Repent, believe in the gospel, come, follow Jesus. And dropping everything as they did to follow Jesus, that reveals for us, reveals to us, that his authority is connected to his identity. Verse 1 Jesus, the Christ, Son of God. Jesus calls whom he wills. And when Jesus calls whom he wills, he actually creates an obedience within them that compels them to follow. He is the mighty, exalted, creative word that we read about in Psalm 33, verse 9, that says, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Jesus is the Word. And Jesus, the Word who's called these fishers of fish to himself, is going to make something new of these men. Fishers of men. And here now in verses 21 to 34, we we have a a kind of bird's-eye overview of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And this covers for us, beloved, one 24-hour period on one particular Sabbath day. It's not a minute-by-minute record of the day, but it begins one Sabbath morning, and we're going to see what happened this particular Sabbath morning. That's, that's as far as we're going to get. And then we'll see what happened that afternoon. We'll look at that next week. 
And then we'll see what happened that evening. So it's a 24-hour cycle that provides for us a clear picture of who Jesus is and how it's even possible that he could atone for our sins because the movement here is to the cross. And the reason this matters is because Jesus claims something that puts every human being on notice. And that is that he claims to be the only way to God for everybody everywhere. It's Jesus that said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one. Okay, I am and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's also the one who said, come to me. All who are burdened by your attempt to meet some expectation, to meet God's approval, you can't do it. Come to me and find rest for your souls. So anyone burdened by such an attempt, come to me, he says, for I am the only way. So Jesus enters into Galilee. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. That is, the kingdom is here as the king has now commenced his public ministry. Okay, so let's think about this. If the kingdom arrived with the king, you would expect some kind of indication of that reality. Right? Right? Yes. If the creator of the universe steps into time and space... It would be horribly surprising if he came and submitted to every particular influence of a fallen world. Every particular incidence or instance of nature and be fully subject to it like everyone else. That would be surprising. It would not be surprising if he entered into time and space and says to the waves and the wind, stop, and they obey. It would not be surprising if he enters into a room and there's a blind person, and he touches their eyes and they see, or he unstops the ears of the deaf, or he casts out a demon or demons by the word of his mouth, where people who who bear witness of this ask, who is this? Who speaks to the winds and the waves and they cease? Who is this that by the word of his mouth casts out demons? He is Jesus, the Christ, son of the living God. It shouldn't be a surprise. So the theme here in our text before us this morning is Jesus' authority. That's what's in sight. He teaches with authority, and he acts with authority. So if Christ came to establish his kingdom, he would have to overpower the one who was currently ruling. That is the one who oppresses souls. That is the one who deceives the nations. That is none other than Satan himself. So the Christ 
The promised one, the Messiah, must possess authority that is far beyond human authority, and he in himself must possess authority that is beyond the physical realm. He must. He must have power over all forces of evil that exist in the universe. This is power that's, that, that, that is, it's required if he, the promised one, is going to rescue sinners from sin and death. Necessary power. Power that, that overrules evil power. Power that overrules blindness, spiritual deadness, and unbelief. He must possess this power in and of himself. So Mark is telling us something about Jesus' power. He alone possesses that authority. And then we look at this narrative, and it combines for us two episodes that define that reality. One is that Jesus teaches with awe-striking authority. They'll be struck out of themselves. And two, he demonstrates his absolute authority over the otherwise unseen demonic realm. Notice Mark emphasizes that all, verse 27, all were astonished by his power and his authority both in and over them. So here then, beloved, begins the Galilean ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Mark begins with these words, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, they being Jesus, John, James, Andrew, and Peter. And it's here that Jesus established his home base for ministry in Galilee. If you notice in chapter 2, we read verse 1. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at, what's the word? Home. So Capernaum became his home. It became his home home base. So it's important we learn a little bit about Capernaum. Capernaum was located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. As I said last week, it's just a a big lake um, on a major trade route, freshwater lake. Um, Obviously, it served as a fishing center. It also served as a trade center um, on the north shore um, of the Galilee. Uh, It was surrounded by fertile lands, Um, abundant fishing trade, no doubt, which provided them a commercial advantage, making Capernaum a very prosperous town. Now, historians tell us that Capernaum also had a 2,500-foot, 2,500-foot long promenade that was atop of an 8-foot-wide wall that skirted the shore of Galilee there in Capernaum. And from it, several piers shot out into the water 100 feet. Okay, so this would be very beautiful, right out into the lake. The population was mostly Jewish, along with some Gentile folk there. Um, Upward, it's hard to know what the population was, but I've read numbers anywhere between 3,000 to 5,000, no more than 10,000. Okay, so that's Capernaum. There was also a Roman garrison there. There was a trade post there. We'll see that in chapter 2. This is the home of Peter and Andrew. We see that in verse 29. And perhaps now the home of of James and John as well. 
but uh, for certain it was Peter and Andrew's home. Now, leading up to this point in Capernaum was a situation that transpired in Nazareth. We, we learned that in Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes into Nazareth. That's where he grew up. And he preaches from Isaiah 61. So he's there in the synagogue. He, 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 he preaches a text that regards messianic prophecies. And he says, concluding, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So there in Nazareth, after pointing out the fact that he fulfills the scripture and then indicting Nazareth for not believing. Remember he said uh, a prophet's not welcome in his own hometown. Well, they attempted to throw him off a cliff and he escapes because it was not yet his time. So, as you know, the Pharisees were in this time the caretakers of the Bible. So they, they, they served as uh, authoritative interpreters. And for them, the, the Bible was primarily a story about Sinai. And that the covenantal um, law given by God, um, Israel, according to the Pharisees, um, said, you know, we will fu- fulfill the commands of his law. But they refused to see that the law was the schoolmaster that leads to Christ. See, what they expected Messiah to be was one who would come and expel Roman authorities and reinstate a Jewish theocracy. So the Messiah, in their minds, served as a means to that end rather than the end of the law. So for Jesus to roll into Nazareth, And to say, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, they naturally want to throw him over a cliff. So he escapes, you know, Jesus, I mean, he told us how to interpret scripture, did he not? From the beginning to end, every narrative, every prophecy, wisdom literature, the Psalms, the hymns, every exhortation serves as the unfolding mystery of Christ and his redemptive work. It's the whole Bible's about. They didn't see it, so they wanted to kill him. So from Nazareth, we read in Luke 4 that he leaves there and he went to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. So Jesus descends from Nazareth, 1,300 feet above sea level, down to Capernaum, 690 feet below sea level. And having arrived there, we read right here in verse 21, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So, obviously, he's in Capernaum. He's in Capernaum. We've seen him in Capernaum. Now, he, he enters into the synagogue. Uh, synagogue is a word that simply means come to, to come together. It's an assembly of the people. And in order to form a synagogue, it, it took at least 10 men from the age of 13 on up. It took 10 men, 13 years of age or older, to form a synagogue, and there on the Sabbath, the law would be read, the law would be explained. During the week, it would be used as a school. Um, It also served as as a civil center. Sometimes they would hold court. There are trials there, um, and so on. Now, in the Old Testament, as you know, the temple was the focal point for the Jews. And there's no indication in in the Old Testament that 
um, local synagogues existed. They typically come out of the uh, Babylonian exile. Where when they were taken captive in 586 B.C., when they were taken into captivity, the, the temple was destroyed. So in order for God's people to meet, they'd have to meet in small groups and so on. So why they gathered there in, in small groups, once they were turned under Nehemiah, they, they took the idea of synagogue back home with them. So by the time of Christ, there's synagogues all throughout the land, which we see in that God's providential plan being worked out, which provides his son, the Messiah, the opportunity to go from place to place to pray, place preaching himself. Preaching the word, that is, reading the word and explaining the word. Now, Luke tells us that it was his custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was his custom. That is, it was his constant, regular practice. And attending as he did, Jesus attended out of volition, a determined willfulness, not out of emotion. He willfully determined to go each and every Sabbath day as opposed to, ah, it depends on how I feel in the morning. So let this be a lesson to us, beloved. This was his custom. If you decide to, 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 to attend Sunday service, dependent upon how you feel in the morning, your attendance will be haphazard, very irregular, very random, all dependent upon how you feel. Today it was cloudy and I felt like sleeping in. (laughs) Or if a Santa Ana comes in, you're going to feel like going to the beach. That'll determine what your attendance is like. It'll be shoddy. As compared to being determined. This is what we will do. This is what my family will do on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. Why don't, we, why don't we gather on the seventh day anymore? On the Sabbath, which means rest. Because our Sabbath rest has come. There was es- ex- eschatological expectations even when the Sabbath was established. Looking forward to our final rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. So we no longer look back to the created order of original creation. Resting and meeting on the seventh day. We now looked at the new creation in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we meet on the first day of the day he rose from the grave. That's why we meet. If anyone comes and says, you you worship on the wrong day. Anyone who's focused on days and feasts and festivals, their focus is not the substance of those things, which is Jesus. It's those things, not the substance, not the fulfillment. Amen? Amen? As was his custom, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he teaches. And as he teaches, there's an immediate buzz, to say the least. A buzz within the room, verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching. Literally, it means they were struck out of themselves. They were struck out of themselves at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Look, these people were hit head-on and knocked out of a regular, boring routine for which they were accustomed. Confronted 
See, Jesus' teaching was absolute. Jesus' teaching was logical. It was concrete. It wasn't subjective or obscure or mystical. It hit you right in the face. Authority. His teaching was objective. Not cluttered with a bunch of rhetoric and ritual. You know, the scribes' teaching was, was often marked by, by corruption. They would twist the scripture. Jesus spoke straight truth. The scribes, they wasted time on triviality. Little details that they made up along the way. Now, the Talmud, which is the oral law, uh, proves that they habitually rambled on about very dry, trifling details. And here comes Jesus. You know, Jesus loved those he taught. The scribes did not. You know what they loved? Jesus said they loved attention. Look at what he said. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplaces. They have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation, which means there's levels of judgment in hell. Now, the main point in the stark contrast between Jesus and the scribes, again, is his authority. This, is all, this, is, this was altogether something different. And this wasn't merely Jesus' charisma or his intellect. It, it wasn't his eloquence. He had a real demanding and commanding power and presence in both word and deed. And they're struck out of themselves. Authority is the word exousia, which literally means it's the idea of authorship. It means from from out of the real stuff. From out of the real stuff, here comes Jesus. It means having power, privilege, prerogative, rule, dominion, having right. Who is he? Is he the word? He has right, prerogative. He comes with authority. He comes speaking absolutely, with conviction, with authority. He's basically saying, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. This is the truth, and that's it. Right? Can you imagine this? See, the scribes typically uh, just quoted their favorite rabbis. This rabbi says this, whereas that rabbi says this. They were not occupied with the greatness of God but they were occupied with their little legalistic rules. So this is what the people... Can you imagine if I just sat up here every week? Uh, Man, you need to wear this, and you need to wear it this way. Women, you need to wear this and wear it this way, and you need to drive this kind of car. Don't live here. Don't live there. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't dance. Don't have fun. Can you imagine this nonsense? They would go on about laborious details, the length of the tassels on their garments and their little shawls, They would talk about the washing of utensils, minuscule Sabbath regulations that they made up, all this heavy detail. The people would fall asleep and bow down under the weight of it all. And here comes Jesus. Jesus doesn't quote anybody. Jesus doesn't give three views on this, that, or the other. No. 
You know, it's very likely that the congregants in this synagogue didn't even realize that they were being spiritually starved, right? That there's like a a spiritual famine in the land, you know, like Amos prophesied. And that famine is a famine of hearing the word of God. You know, there's a lot of people, sincere Christians, who sit in churches this very morning and they're being starved and malnourished and they don't even know it. That's sad. They don't know what they don't know. They're being starved the truth because you got some entertainer up front. Sad. Men don't change. Jesus comes with striking authority. The people realized his teaching was a teaching that was as though he were the author of this. And guess what? He is. He's the source of the truth, and that fact left them speechless. Beside themselves, he read and explained the text. In other words, beloved, Jesus was an expositional preacher. He read the text, and he explained the text. That's what we do here. As modeled by our Lord, as modeled by the apostles, you read it and you explain it. Because that's how God's people are what? Sanctified in the truth. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You know, that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount six times said, you know, you've all heard that it was said, but I say. You know, you've heard it said like this, but let me tell you the meaning of that text. Because what you heard, that's not the meaning of the text. That's authority. He's he's confronting this people with the absolute claim of God on their whole being as they sit there. Amazing. So Jesus comes preaching, as was his custom, on the Sabbath into the synagogue, and preaching he does with unparalleled authority. Okay, so there's the authority. Now, while he's teaching something very interesting to say the least, happens. And Mark now tells us of a great confrontation. So there's the authority that leads to a confrontation, verse 23. And immediately, Mark's favorite word, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Okay, so like everybody else, this man is sitting there who has a demon. And there's no apparent difference between him or anyone else up until this point. And that is the point where Jesus preaches. Speaking with authority, Jesus comes in. The the regular congregants are there. Here's a man who has an unclean spirit, which means he's demon-possessed. And the spirit within the man, as Jesus teaches with authority, gets stirred up, becomes agitated, provoked, and above all, terrified. Don't miss that. Terrified. This is a real demon. Demons are non-corporeal beings. They're non-physical, spiritual beings, fallen angels, unclean, demonic spirit, distinct from this man. Yet controlling this man, acting out through this man, no doubt tormenting this man, screaming out through the vocal cords of this man. 
terrified. Verse 23, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. As soon as Jesus shows up and speaks, there's an instant recognition on the demon's part. Instantly. He knows that he's up against superior power. And he senses his doom because he knows that ultimately the Son of God will destroy them. Demons. You see, for this demon, indwelling this man, as Jesus walks in, the lion's teeth are exposed. The arm of the warrior is raised, and he is terrified. The unclean spirit, more than anyone else in that room, recognizes who Jesus is. So while his authority amazed the people, They were struck out of themselves. It caused them, notice verse 27, to wonder. The demons, they were terrified. The people were struck with awe. They were struck with fear. Reason for the different reactions? The people didn't know who he was. The demons did. Immediately, they know who he is. There's a clear recognition here of who Jesus is, and it terrifies not only this demon, but the demonic realm. Did you notice the demon who speaks on behalf of all of them? Notice here the, the, the plural pronouns. What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, remember, one of the themes of Mark's gospel is the failure to rightly recognize the Christ. Whether it was the crowds or even his own disciples and the religious sect, no doubt, and even his own family, which we'll see, did not recognize him as who he was. So the first half of Mark, his gospel, is filled with confusion and misunderstanding about the identity of Jesus, the Christ, Son of God. The only ones who are not confused all throughout are the demons. We see it there in chapter 1. In chapter 3, verse 11, we read this. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. In chapter 5, verse 2, it tells us a man with an unclean spirit coming out of the tombs where he lived, He's confronted by Jesus. He's screaming. Chapter 5, verse 5 says, Constantly, night and day, he's in the tombs and in the mountains, cutting himself with stones, seeing Jesus from a distance. He runs up to Jesus, falls down before him, shouting with a loud voice, saying, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Flawless recognition. You know, demons never attack Jesus. Jesus attacked them. They're terrified. Why? Because he blows their cover. He's blowing the cover of this demon. 
They're invisible to us, but they know that to him, they're visible. They're uncovered. They're fully aware that Jesus recognizes them and they scream out because terror grips them. He's going to destroy them. It's amazing. You know, when Jesus is addressed by people in the Gospels, people in need, they approach him in very polite terms. You know, they say something like, Rabbi, teacher, master, Lord, as in kind sir. Not the demons. All they can do is admit, we know who you are, son of the Most High God. We know. Have you come to destroy us? And one of them says, before it is what? Before it is the time. You know, the thing that's so astonishing to the people about Jesus' authoritative teaching is that he looks like anybody else. He looks like any other guy. And yet he teaches with such authority, but the demonic realm, the demonic spirit sees in Jesus God coming with unleashed strength, unleashed power. They see it. He is Jesus the Christ, Son of God. He comes with sword unsheathed, so to speak, and they're terrified. They're horrified. Question. Why do false religions, why do false teachers within false religions shine? Why do they glimmer? Why do they seem so right? Why do they feel so right to so many people? Why? Why do so many people involve themselves with false teachers, false religious systems? And it's quite simple because false religion bears a disguise. It bears a disguise of what is true and what is right, but it is deadly wrong. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. Satan disguises himself as what? As an angel of light. You know, the ghouly goblin thing. <laughs> Satan. He, that's the last thing that he wants you to see him as. Oh, the guy's got a swastika carved in his forehead. Satan. No, he disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of what? Righteousness. The last thing a demon wanted to do was to reveal himself in the synagogue. Here he is in, in, in this man indwelling him. The whole scheme, again, schemes of the devil, tricks of the devil, the whole scheme of appearing as an angel of light is to cover yourself in a very religious environment. Are you with me? You want to know why there's false religions? That's why. So to one degree or another, every religious system within it dwells demonics, uh, de- demons. I'm not saying that you know, all the people are demonic. You know, um, possessed or anything like that but he orchestrates this every false religion has angels of light scheming angels of light behind them whether it's islam mormonism buddhism or judaism they all behind them in every other ism or every other system 
either oppress, possess, and most of all, obsess people, deceiving them as light. Satan wants to hook people by way of deception and drag them to hell. Right? Agnosticism. Well, we can't really know. I heard a guy on TV that night, you know, the most humble position to take is that we can't really know. No, you're a fool. You suppress the truth in your unrighteousness. Creation alone testifies that there's a God. That's, that's general revelation. You all who are in Christ have been given special revelation. You have the resident presence of the Spirit. He possesses you. He owns you. That's what possession is. He owns you. Therefore, no Christian who has the Spirit can possibly be possessed by a demon. So this guy wasn't some believer sitting in the congregation who was possessed. Amen? I've heard that nonsense. It's crazy. Listen to what Jesus said to the Jews of his day in John 8. You're of your father the devil. I forgot to put that up there. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks from his own character, out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who is the truth? That's why gospel truth, beloved, is deadly to the demonic operation. It's the only thing that's deadly to the demonic realm. It's the gospel. See, this is the true conflict. Look, it's not about Muslims blowing up people. It's not flesh and blood war, beloved. Amen? Let's go back to Ephesians 6. What is it? What's behind it all? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here's a demon-possessed man in attendance. And you have to wonder, how long did this cat sit in this congregation and the demon within him not be agitated or provoked? Huh? How long? Sinclair Ferguson says this. This is an indictment of the spiritual condition of the people. Was that congregation so spiritually dead that it had been possible for a demon-possessed man to attend without being disturbed by what was sung or prayed or taught? End quote. No, it could have been another outburst, and they didn't know what to do. But it's probably more likely it was a dead congregation where the truth wasn't preached. So the demon was never agitated. You know, I think about unbelievers who come here and they sit here. The last thing I would ever want is for an unbeliever to be comfortable here. Comfortable. 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 Now, let me tell you this. I would want unbelievers to come here and most certainly feel loved. Amen? Loved by y'all. Loved by me. Hopefully, you wouldn't be offended by us or by me personally. But I do hope... Any unbeliever cannot sit here and have the water, the, the, the water of the word, the truth of the word, wash over them and off of them like water off the back of a duck. 
No, you do not want that. My hope is that you would be utterly offended and assaulted by the gospel like a dagger to your soul to cut you deep, to peel you back, to expose who you really are. That's what I hope you feel as an unbeliever because of love. To rip you open, to rip your rib cage open, metaphorically speaking, and expose the stench of sin with a two-edged sword piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart and terrify you so that you run to the only source of hope you have. And it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's the only one that can cleanse you of your sin and bring you from death to life. That's my hope. So I hope you're offended. And in your offendedness, I hope you flee to Christ. You get what I'm saying? So the authority leads to a confrontation, and the confrontation results in a demonstration of Christ's kingly rule and power. He's the king, amen? The kingdom's upon you. The kingdom's here because I'm the king, so now he's going to demonstrate that reality. Verse 23, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice. Imagine what that sounded like. I was going to do what I think it is, but I didn't want to scare the kids. (laughs) With a loud voice came out of him. Notice here there's no incantation here. Did you notice this? Did you notice this? Hey, don't watch that garbage on TV. The, the, The phone evangelists. The phone evangelists. There's no ritual, there's no chanting, there's no props, no hocus pocus, no gripping the man's forehead and saying, be gone, Satan, none of that. Jesus speaks, right? Bunch of nonsense. Benny Hinn's, the John Hagee's, the Copeland's, the Bentley's. Jesus speaks. And, verse 26, The unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Jesus orders their silence. But demons rarely go quietly. So it says here he convulses him. That means to to hold this man down, to, to distort by way of convulsion. But he has to obey. He must. Christ's power, Christ's authority, his truth, his purity in the presence where this demon is, is frightened and he screams. I believe, I'm convinced, if they scream through those who are possessed, I'm quite certain in the unseen realm, in the midst of people who believe falsely, they laugh. They laugh. Because they deceive. That's just my own input. If they scream, terrified by Christ, they probably laugh in the midst of those who are blind and carry on. 
So there's a final protest, but that final protest results in absolute necessary obedience. It comes out. So we've witnessed the all-striking authority. We've seen the confrontation. We've seen the demonstration of Christ's kingly rule. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what it's telling us. It's very simple. He's come into this world to reverse the demonic realm, to destroy everything that went down at the fall. He's turning it upside down. And he will ultimately, absolutely destroy the kingdom of darkness. Look at 1 John 3, verse 8. What's the reason the Son of God came? The Son of God appeared. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And here he is doing it. He comes to undo the works. He comes to destroy the works of the devil. Later, Jesus will say to Peter, right, in chapter 8, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Will not prevail against it. And right here within this individual, Jesus is saying, part of what I do is destroying those works. And part of my work is for God's kingdom to prevail over the kingdom of darkness. And we see it right here. He had to come with this power. Look what he said in Luke 11 to the, to the Pharisees that day, uh, in, in his day. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has what? Has come upon you. It's come upon you. So here's Jesus at the outset of his ministry, marching into enemy-occupied territory, declaring his sovereignty, declaring his victory, declaring his triumph by the word of his mouth. So this is a foretaste, beloved. This is a glimpse. This scene is a glimpse of what we will see in the latter chapters of Revelation where Satan and his minions will be thrown into the the lake of fire. Notice the reaction, verse 27. We see his authority. We see the confrontation. We see the demonstration of his kingly power. And notice the reaction of the people. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. You know what the tragedy is? There's a tragedy here, beloved. Tragedy of this account is that although there were so many firsthand witnesses, not only to this, but as we'll see next Lord's Day, many miraculous healings, many mighty works, most of them remained spiritually unchanged. Unaffected in their relationship to Jesus' message, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, this is heavy. Don't miss this. Because a lot of people will sit through church their entire lives and they'll end up in hell. Unconverted. Unbelieving. Unrepentant. Jesus did more miracles in Capernaum than in any other city. So there's no mystery then as regards what Jesus spoke to Capernaum and their 
fate. Listen to this, Matthew 11, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, okay, which God destroyed, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Okay, what do we see here? Many of those in the synagogue, many of the attendees, apparently professed orthodoxy with their mouth. They professed orthodoxy with their mouth. And I say this, don't ever be moved by someone who merely professes orthodoxy with their mouth if their life doesn't reflect the reality of the orthodoxy. Oh, I got all my ducks in a row, all my doctrinal ducks in a row. I know about justification and hypostatic union, and I know about this, and I know blah, 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 blah. No evidence at all that they're in Christ. It makes no difference in their lives. There's no fruit of faith of Jesus Christ in their lives, but they say they believe. What did James say about that? You say you believe in one God. Oh, you do good. The demons, they believe, and they, they shudder. They're terrified. You know, demons believe with begrudging belief. It's begrudging belief. They know who they're up against. They believe without any doubt. They believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They believe without a doubt there's one true God, may manifest the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one Godhead. They know it. They believe it. But for them, it's an unwelcome reality. For some people, it's an unwelcome reality. It's undeniable that God exists to demons, friends. It's undeniable that there's one way to the Father, and it's Jesus Christ the Son. They know that. Undeniably, they know that. And they shudder. So after all of this, and what we'll see next Lord's Day, the response of the crowd is one of attraction, not conviction. Many people are attracted to Christ. You know, some people, they hop in and out of here. And typically, they'll hop in when they have a really bad week at work. You don't see them for three months. And, oh, you know, I want Jesus to fix my problems. And they roll in. It's very possible to be attracted to Christ without repenting. It's very possible to be attracted to Jesus and his mighty works without believing. So then it's quite possible to be part of a group of followers of Jesus Christ without repenting and believing. That's his message. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Change your thinking. Change your course of thought that you think God is like this when he's nothing like that. Repent of it. Believe. Come to me, he says. And you'll be what? Saved from his wrath. People can sit in church for years without believing. And I want to make sure and do everything I can on my part to make sure it doesn't happen here. So if you're a believer, you shouldn't be offended. Right? This man sat in a synagogue with a demon. Jesus rolls in and (laughs) all hell breaks loose. 
because he came to destroy the enemy. When sinners come to a true understanding of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the first step is terror. You're terrified because you know he's holy and you're not. But true godly fear, what does it produce? It produces a desire to run to find to the remedy, Jesus Christ, Son of God, who bore God's wrath in the place of sinner, sinners. Because all those who are merely amazed, like these people in Capernaum, okay, they were amazed, the demons were terrified, and guess where they all end up in the end? Together in hell. Amazed people, merely amazed, and terrified demons. See, somehow, this, this is what it tells us as we close up here. Somehow, the lives of every human being, believer or not, every human being are dependent upon the life of Christ, who is the last what? Adam. Follow me on this. As I thought through this, follow me. There is something eternal at stake for every single one of us. So it is of utter importance to know Jesus and what he is really about. So I want to close with two pictures. Everyone's end is one of these two places. And it's all dependent upon the life of Christ. Revelation 21. You can just listen to this or turn there. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven. Beloved, beloved brothers and sisters, this is yours. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, first and the last. Or no, I'm sorry, I added that. It's another text. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who, listen to this, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. Chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Compare that end with the only other end. Revelation 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on their forehead or hand, everyone has a mark, you're all marked, everyone's marked, it's invisible, metaphorical, not literal. (sighs) We won't go there. 
He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, who is Christ. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives a mark of its name. Okay, here is a call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. To, 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 to obey or keep the commandments of God is to believe God. Okay, it's to believe God. You don't earn it, you believe. The living Christ is there, beloved, in both scenes. Which tells us he's either your savior or your judge. Savior or judge. Now, we've covered this morning only the morning of that 24-hour period. This Sabbath day morning. This one day in the life of Jesus. And it alone, beloved, if you missed it, it shows us that this is the one, this is the only one in whom there's rest for your soul. Why? Because the hell that's due to every human being, but by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, he bore on the cross at Calvary. That punishment was the punishment of God the Father upon the Son in place of all who will ever what? Believe. And by believing in Jesus, the Christ, Son of God, who bore the wrath of God the Father upon the cross, which was hell descending upon him, will be granted a position of righteousness placed upon your account. And you'll come to realize, if you're not in him, that all of your sin and guilt was placed on him, and you get a great exchange. You receive his righteousness in your place, condemned he stood. He bore the punishment only for those who repent and believe the gospel. And it's to him. It's only he that can lift the burden, lift the weight of trying to do this yourself. Amen? The glory of the gospel.